All right, church, flip to Philippians 2 and Colossians 1. You can kind of put your finger there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, and then Colossians chapter 1 is where we'll spend our time today. And uh, this was a, an odd one. We are talking about Christ. last week was man and sin, this week Christ and atonement, and sort of bringing those two things together. Um, and I really had trouble <laughs> for a little while trying to figure, okay, there's so many passages that I could expound on and we could use, but these two are the ones that I ended up choosing. Um, so by no means, obviously, there's more. We read Hebrews 1 there a minute ago. That's another good passage. So um, those will be our two, two texts, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And uh, let's go ahead and read that. These are the words of God. Philippians 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then just flip a page over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, note that, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy God, we have gathered here today, not out of rote uh, exercise, but for worship, pure, pure worship in spirit and truth. Uh, we thank you that you sent Jesus, your Son, to live and die, rise and reign. Search our hearts, Holy Spirit. Remove the sinful dross so that we can be white as snow. Open our minds as we open our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as I've emphasized before, this, uh, this series we've been doing is all about having a proper foundation for the future of Christendom. And you might think, wow, that's, that's quite a bold statement. You think Christendom has a future? And I would say, well, yeah, I actually believe that the, the church's best days are ahead. And, and obviously that's despite the utter train wreck that was last year and is this year. Um, train wreck doesn't even begin to describe it. The reason that I can stress the bright future of Christendom and the absolute success of the church in history is based on the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead and because of that fact, he has been established as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The work of Christ and his success in outpacing at every turn the works of men is an inevitable, you might even say inveterate, it's a habitual victory. That's just the nature of the kingdom and the gospel. So the gospel of the kingdom, what we proclaim, is synonymous with victory. And, and this is where it steps on toes, um, particularly uh, people standing out front. 
um, who are um, not on Team Jesus, who are trying to cry out for justice, um, not only is the kingdom about victory, it's also about conquest. And so Joshua very much is a great book for us and judges to learn about. So anything short of this view of the kingdom is a paltry false gospel. Um, Revelation 11.15 says it like this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Not the kingdom will become, the kingdoms of this world will become. Um, We're talking a past tense here. It has become because Christ is risen. So the weak, passive Christianity that stems from pietism is foreign and antithetical to Scripture. It's foreign and antithetical to Scripture. So the, the weak passive Christianity you see going on around around you it's not just a problem because we don't like it it's a problem because the Bible doesn't like it (laughs) so know that so if Christianity think of it this way if Christianity is going to flourish in this nation the need of the hour is a strong robust understanding of the victory of Christ and the subsequent ordering of life that that victory produces note that there were two things that I said if we're gonna see success gospel success in this nation, where it seems like the pagans have overrun the hen house, right? They, everything seems disheveled and, and unkept at this point. What we need is a robust understanding of the victory of Christ, and not just so we can put it on a coffee cup and say, yeah, Christ is king. We need to also understand that there's a subsequent ordering of life that that victory then produces. Okay, so don't disconnect the two. So my hope is that by anchoring ourselves in these doctrines that we've been covering, we might in turn align ourselves with the Bible in such a way as to change the world around us. And um, it needs to be changed. (laughs) We have a lot of work ahead of us. So let's consider our texts and the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind because it is yours. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was a real human, right? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as in what just happened, what is now the result, um, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, basic Christian doctrine teaches that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. He became a man, a real man, a human male to be precise with no gender fluidity to it. A human male. We call this the incarnation. The incarnation is a Latin-based word that simply means uh, to, to be made flesh, or what we like to think of embodiment, that idea of embodiment. God, who is spirit, is trinity. We already went over that a few weeks ago, the tri- triune God, the doctrine of God, the aseity of God, all these big concepts. One God, three persons, right? One God, Three persons, that's our confession. And the Son of God, that second person, took on human flesh. So Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth being um, not his last name, (laughs) 
of Nazareth. That's where he was from. He was born of a virgin. He was thus fully divine. He was both a fully divine and a fully human person. Now, the gospel announcement is that God had now come in the flesh, as was promised to Israel. You just think of the, the prophecies of, and behold, the virgin shall conceive, and so on. Um, the prophecy in Micah 5, too, about Bethlehem. And, and so there's a lot of prophetic anticipation leading up to Jesus coming and taking on flesh. And, and, and the announcement being that God himself is coming. So in terms of an historical fight to defend this truth, there were two key councils that arose very early on. First, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. The Council of Nicaea in 325, um, just a few short um, years after Constantine, he declared Christianity to be basically the religion of the empire, and that was issued in 313 at the Edict of, Edict, Edict of Milan. So just a few short years later, the Council of Nicaea comes together. You've got men like Athanasius who are present defending the truth. Um, Athanasius is always ready to punch a heretic, as the joke goes. Um, but the Council of Nicaea fought against the Arian notion that Jesus was God's first creation. They, Arius was teaching that Jesus was a created person. It's not like he was part of the Godhead and then was born. It's Jesus just started to exist at that point when, when Mary was um, having him as a child. So the council fought against that notion by affirming that he was the same substance and essence as the father. Homoousis is the Greek word. They were fought over one vowel in that word. One vowel changes its meaning significantly. Is he, the, is he God? Is Jesus God? That's the issue. So the, the confession we know from the New Testament is there is one God, there is one God, there is one God. However, that one God has revealed himself in three persons. So there's one God, not two. Or millions, as it were, while we're doing that. So Jesus was begotten, not made. That statement goes, flies in the face of what Arius himself was teaching. It's a direct attack of what... Um, Arius' false teachings where he was um, stationed in Alexand Alexandria. Second, there was another council that developed early on, this time the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, so over 100 years later. The Council of Chalcedon, they had, there was another fight the church had against a couple of heresies. One was the Nestorian, Nestorius was the guy, Nestorian heresy that Jesus had two personalities and not one. So that was the Nestorian heresy. And there was the Eutychian heresy that taught that Jesus' divinity had essentially overrun his humanity. It's like, oh yeah, he became a man, but then he stopped being a man. He's basically just God. So those were two heresies that the Council of Chalcedon had to deal with. So both of them were false teaching. And instead, Chalcedon affirmed, and rightly, and this is, this is our history, church, this is our history, Jesus was and is, in fact, one whole person with two natures. He's not 50% divine and 50% human. Okay, one whole person with two natures. Now, to, well, you might think, well, what does that mean? What is, how, why are we splitting hairs over this? Well, we're not. T to have two natures meant to have two capacities for action and reaction, experience and expression of both natures, etc. Um, so that's important because we don't want to confuse the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, which is why um, 
that's the main point of Chalcedon was that there's no mixture or confusion, separation or division within the one person, Jesus. So that rules out our modern day notion of, of a, um, someone who may experience bipolar uh, of tendencies. It's not that Jesus, his, sometimes he's human and then sometimes he's divine. It's he's perfectly both as one person. So that's, that was hammered home in the Cal, uh, Chalcedon Council in 451. And of course, we know that both of his human and divine natures, they retain their respective attributes in the one person. So, it, you know, not to dive too further into that, but that's part of basic Christian doctrine that the church has fought for. So Paul says that Jesus of Nazareth, who was in his God, he emptied himself. That is, he became a humble, lowly servant. He became a humble, lowly servant. Theologians call this the humiliation of Christ. He descended from heaven, becoming a man. He lived a completely sinless life, obedient to God. He died on a Roman cross, and as a result of this humiliation, he was exalted, Paul says, what theologians call the exaltation of Christ. So all of this led to Jesus being given the name above all names. And having the name above all names means that as the world's true Lord, every knee Listen, every single knee, willingly or unwillingly, will bow before him. So you, you go into an evangelism encounter and you're a little bit nervous. You shouldn't be. They're bowing one way or the other. So there's no, you know, what do you have to lose? <laughs> You've bowed already. They just need to bow. And they're going to, willingly or unwillingly. Now flip over to Colossians 1. So here Paul paints a Christology with a similar but a little bit of a different hue. Jesus, he says, is the image, the icon of the invisible God. The humanity of Jesus is both the climax of history and the launching point of the new creation. So we understand, this is why it's so important to have this doctrine squared away. We understand humanity and divinity by looking at the person of Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what humanity ought to look like? Look at Jesus. Everything converges on him. So as the firstborn of all creation, remember Israel oftentimes was called in the Old Testament the firstborn. Uh, Hosea 11:1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Um, there are several references to that. But as the firstborn of creation, Jesus holds supreme rank, not as a created being, but as the creator of all. You get into a discussion with someone who's well-versed in the Bible, and they are anti-Jesus. They are so far gone from Christianity, but let's pretend they show up and they flip open Colossians chapter 1, and they might come up to you and say, look, he's the firstborn of all creation. What are you talking about? He's not a created being. Clearly, he was mistaken. Well, as is typically um, the case, just keep reading your Bible, <laughs> and the answer will be told right after. He is not a created being and therefore supreme. He is supreme in that he's the creator of all. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So this interpretation is maintained when Paul goes on to say that Jesus created all things through himself, right, through him and for him. Given that Jesus is the ultimate presupposition, he is before everything. He is before all things, and as such, he holds it all together. Uh, that's quite a task, holding the universe together. Every molecule, 
every atom, every proton, neutron, and electron is held together in place because the sovereign God says that it should be. And at any moment, he could undo it. Any moment, he could. So he is, the bol- he is both the recipe and the entree, as we might say. So Jesus is also the head of the church. And the, head of, the church is the new humanity formed by his death and resurrection. What does it mean to be human? You could ask that question on a college campus and you would get a whole lot of different answers. What does it mean to be human? Well, I'm just a highly evolved bag of meat and protons. (laughs) Um, Wow, that's great. Why should I care about anything you have to say then? Um, People will think that, but what does it mean to be human? Well, it means to be like Jesus, the true human. So Jesus' resurrection specifically marks him out as preeminent and supreme in all things. Note that the resurrection is a big deal. The resurrection of Christ is a big big deal. That is the, the event that marks him out as preeminent in everything, as supreme in everything. Don't just think, oh yeah, resurrection, we celebrated that a few weeks ago. No, 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 resurrection is it. That's the foundation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ isn't raised, We are in big trouble. (laughs) So, to put it in my own language. So the fullness of God dwelt in him. The fullness of God dwelt in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, which made him the perfect and the only viable candidate to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, he says. And the reconciliation process is the peace that he gave to the world by the blood of his cross. That's what Paul says here in Colossians 2. And by the way, uh, as much as I appreciate some of what Dr. MacArthur has taught, um, when his church decided to go against the lockdown orders, one thing he said, he said, look, Christ is head of the church. And he points to this passage. And to which I say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is the head of the church. He is our covenant um, person. That absolutely is true. Flip real quick to Colossians 2. What does verse 10 say? Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. Okay, that's where some of this is missing. He is the head of all rule and authority. So he's head of church and he's head of state, basically. He's head of church and head of state. So we have in these two sections of scripture quite a remarkable picture of Jesus the Son, who he is, where he came from, what exactly he came to do and the results of which he came to do. What does that look like as it pertains to the rest of the world? Well, Paul says in Philippians, well, every knee is going to bow. So here's Jesus. Here's what he did. He came and did this. He died. He rose again. Here are the ramifications. Everyone's going to bow. He is the head of all things. Now, I'm going to zoom out a little bit and explore this a little more. I mentioned earlier the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. These are two ways to look at Jesus and what he has done and what he is doing right now. What has he done and what he is doing right now. And we'll start with the humiliation part. The humiliation part, by the way, we just simply mean the humility part. We tend to think of humiliation in terms of I got embarrassed, but in its true meaning, it just means humility, humble. Jesus was the Word become flesh, John 1. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's Romans 8, which means he was truly a man. If Jesus is just a 
glorified Star Wars, you know, uh, what do they call the uh, hologram. If, if he was just kind of human, then we have a problem. Uh, but he wasn't. He was truly, truly human. He was of Abraham's seed, Galatians 3. He was of Judah's line, Hebrews 7. He was a son of David, Romans 1. Born of a virgin woman, Galatians 4. He took, he partook of flesh and blood. Jesus possessed a spirit, that's Matthew 27, 50. A soul, Matthew 26, 38. And a body, 1 Peter chapter 2. As a child, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. We know he was gaining favor with men and with God, Luke 2. Jesus experienced the full gamut of emotions and experience, everything we experience. He was hungry and thirsty. He experienced sorrow. He experienced joy, um, emotional stirring, even, even what makes many people uncomfortable when he got angry and uh, flipped some tables and drove out and completely disturbed what was going on that day in the temple. He came as a Hebrew under the law, obedient until death. Jesus himself, as a man, as a real human, with blood flowing through his veins, just like you have, he, in fact, suffered immense torture. Immense torture. Beatings. Okay? Mocking, spitting, people spitting upon him. He died on a cross. Really died. Nails driven through his hands. Blood everywhere. Asphyxiation sets in. He gives up his spirit. No man takes his life, right? No man takes it. He gave it up when it was time. Bows his head and dies. Heart stops beating. Brains stop firing neurons, right? He's dead. They go to break his knees, but they can't because prophecy, God won't allow it. So they stab a sword or spear into the side. John tells us blood and water comes out. Just like the rib out of Adam, Eve was made just out of the rib of Christ. We have the beautiful bride, the church. They took him down off the cross. Uh, the Jewish people didn't want to desecrate the land. I mean, it's sort of a little late for that, don't you think? You just killed God's son. But they didn't want the body to be on the cross after sunset. So they brought it down. They put him in a tomb, which was in a garden. It was a tomb that was owned by a rich man. There was no beauty. There was no beauty in this man that we should desire him. No one's hiring him to be a model. No beauty in him. He was rather ordinary and routine. As Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and treated unworthily. We esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. What a description. Is your God, Allah, well acquainted with grief? No. No. When we speak of the humiliation of Christ, this is what we're referring to. His humble birth, his kingdom-oriented life, and upsetting death, ending in a burial where all, all basically seemed to be lost. All hope was gone. And yet, thanks to the resurrection, we also have the exaltation of Christ too. After his perfect life and sacrificial death, Jesus was raised into resurrection glory. As such, he was taken into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. From his throne, he supervises the work of the ambassadorial church as his people promote the victory of the gospel in the world. In his humiliation, Christ thrust himself into fellowship with, with us in every way. 
uh, he thrust himself into fellowship naturally, right? His presence as a human body, a human, in human form. Juridical, meaning the legal. He was obedient to the law of God. Uh, he was obedient where Adam had failed and where we fail, but he was himself was legally um, in the right. He also ethically, tied to that, was a moral person in that he did not sin, not once. So having accomplished all those things, he was raised to be Lord of all. The exaltation only exists the way it does because of his humiliation. Um, The resurrection, we know, was the reversal of the world's verdict on the cross. The world had come together, convened, and said, this is what we think of God. We hate him. We will spit on him. We will brutally kill him. That's what we think of God. But the resurrection reverses that verdict. In fact, the crown came only after the cross. Now, as it pertains to the atonement, I want to be a little more specific. We know in Scripture that Jesus stood in our place. He stood in our place. He put himself under the law. He took our guilt, our sin, our sickness on himself on the cross. Because he was perfect, his rule is now secure. Because his death was perfect, his rule is now secure. A once dead but now raised Messiah is a conquering, unstoppable Messiah. If death couldn't stop him, what else can? All who are reconciled to the Father by the Son in his substitutionary death, that's what we call his atonement, are forgiven of their sins. They are adopted into his family. They are given peace that surpasses all understanding. They possess eternal life, and they have a heavenly inheritance that cannot be confiscated or spoiled. The work of Christ is our work by faith alone. His crucifixion is our crucifixion. His death is our death. His burial is our burial. Okay? His resurrection and ascension, that's our resurrection and our ascension. Christ's present session as the exalted King and Lord is our present session as we rule and reign with him in this millennium. The exaltation of Christ also grants to us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who renews us, who leads us in all truth and accompanies us day to day as the church militant. Now there's another aspect to Christ and his atonement that needs to be emphasized. That is, if we're going to have a holistic understanding of him, there are three particular offices that Christ occupies and we would be remiss in failing to mention them here. Jesus bears the name Christ or Messiah, Meshiach in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, same thing, same word, not a last name, an office. He is the anointed one. When we say Jesus Christ, we mean Jesus the anointed one. Um, I, I heard this somewhere, I can't remember now, but somebody had said if Jesus had a last name, it would be son of David or Davidson, <laughs> which makes sense. If he had a mailbox, it would say the Davidsons because um, he's son of David. And oh yeah, that, that makes sense. But Jesus is the Christ. He was granted the corresponding status, this corresponding status, uh, in order to carry out this Holy, uh, Holy Spirit-inspired task. That's why he was anointed. When you're anointed to do something, it, you kind of do something. <laughs> it's part of, the, part of the deal. So these three offices, they were meant for Adam to enjoy. But as we saw last week, Adam and Eve forsook the calling, opting instead to rebel against God and God's purposes. So what was Adam supposed to do? 
Well, Adam was to be a prophet. He was supposed to be a prophet, proclaiming the words and commands of God. He was supposed to, didn't really do that great of a job communicating with his wife. Same problem goes on today, right? Um, he was supposed to be a priest. As a priest in the garden, Adam was to dedicate himself and his family to the sacrificial work of God in the world. Third, as king, Adam was to rule righteously in the administrative affairs of all things. Prophet, priest, king. Jesus, then, as the second Adam, who I like to call King Adam II, he came to demonstrate what it means to be a genuine human being. So if you all want to know, and if you're going to answer that question to somebody, what does it mean to be human? If you want to know what it means to be human, the only possible way you can look, place you can go to look, is, is Jesus. As a prophet, Jesus heralds the truth about God to a world unscrupulously bent on lies. As priest, Jesus mediates between God and man by offering up himself as a sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of sins. He is the high priest. As king, Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron, which I take to mean his law word, the sharp edge of the law word of God. We need a prophet to tell us what God says. We need a priest to draw us near to this God, lest we die. And thirdly, we need a king who, in the name of God, governs and protects his people. Folks, in Jesus, we have all three. In Jesus, we have it all. We know what God says. We can have a relationship with this God that's not one that's at animosity and enmity, but one that is pure and righteous and good. And also, we have a king who rules over everything. How do you govern your household? King Jesus. That's the answer. Which is all another way of saying that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. What do we mean when we, the people of God, who bear the name Christian, I mean, that's, that's our name. It was a pejorative in the early church. Ah, those Christians. Those people of the Christos, the, the Christ. If, if that's who we are, and it is, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? What are we saying? Well, first, we know that Jesus is the only possible way to get right with God, which is man's ultimate need. The only possible way to get right with God is this person, Jesus. Only Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. As Messiah, Jesus provides for us the only possible way to the Father. He's the only possible way to, to truth in this universe. And not only that, he's the only possible life in a world of death. Saying Jesus is Lord is, is a Catholic or a universal way of saying that he is Lord over all things. And listen, there is no life or thought or philosophy or political belief that is outside of his law and outside of his authority. None. Second, we also mean that Jesus, only Jesus has final unlimited rule. Civil government does not have final unlimited rule, despite the fact that it at times tries to have it. Case in point, the past two years. The realm of the family, the realm of the church and the state is limited. It's always limited and subordinate. Kids, obey your parents. But guess who they have to answer to? The God of the universe. And you do too. So we are all subordinate to Christ who is our king. In other words, the realm of Christ's authority encompasses all men everywhere without exception. And I'm just, 
quick rabbit trail, very quick. Why are we trying to apologize for this? So the, the Christian, here's how Christians are today. Thus says, thus recommends the Lord. Well, the Lord prefers this, but we're weak and passive and impotent, so we don't want to say something too offensive. No, thus says the Lord, without exception. You don't have to apologize for the law of God. Oh, that seems rather harsh that God would dole out punishments like that. Yeah, it seems harsh. It should have been worse. Because you don't know what sin is, and you don't know who God is. So how dare you judge my Lord by calling him unjust? See, the salvation that Christ provides, then, is an unmitigated act of grace. It's an act of unmitigated grace, really. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, has died to forgive sins. We did not deserve it. We know that. And guess what? We didn't even ask for it. We didn't ask for it. We put him on the cross. He redeems us from all iniquity and lawlessness. He teaches us how to live sober, responsible lives in terms of justice and righteousness and the justice and righteousness of heaven. The sheer fact that Christ came, lived among us, died for our sins and is now seated as Lord Protector of the Church in history means that He and only He has unceasing dominion, which means that He is both Savior and He is Lord. He's Savior and Lord. So, as we kind of wrap this up, what does this mean for the future of Christendom? That's, after all, this, that was the point of this series. Well, the reality is Jesus as a person stands at the center of our faith, the Christian religion is only good as Jesus, no more or no less. That's it. He's literally the linchpin of the whole thing. Think about it. It's in the name, Christian. It has to do with Jesus. To be a Christian, then, is to be about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he intends to do. And this means that our imaginations have nothing to do with the Christian religion. And what I mean is many ostensible Christians today have built an entire religion around what they think Christianity should mean. Nice Jesus with flowing blonde hair. A Fabio-esque picture. No bloody cross. Blood is gross. Sort of Bonhoeffer's cheap grace mindset. Ease and comfort. Just ease and comfort. That's all we need. For Jesus wouldn't dare say anything to the rulers who want to poison you with an experimental drug. In fact, far too many so-called Christians have built a phony religion around their cutesy ideas about humanity and divinity, foregoing anything that Jesus might have to say about it. We don't know how to act in the world because we don't know who Jesus is. The future of Christendom, as I see it, is going to have to get back to the doctrine of Christ as revealed in the Bible. And the reason for this is because, quite literally, the future of our nation, or any nation, rests upon it. Note that Jesus told us in the Great Commission that he has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. People skip that. All power, all authority has been given to him. That's quite a claim, that's quite a claim. I mean, we'd laugh someone out of here. If Lord Northam stands up, I have all power and authority. Yeah, okay. We would laugh at that person, jeer them, mock them, you know, sort of pull an Elijah on them and taunt the prophets of Baal, right? 
See, it's quite a claim, and it tells us that no one else but he has it. No ruler, governor, president, or dictator has such power and authority. And based on this claim, Jesus is essentially laying claim to the discipleship of the nations. Note that. I bought the nations with my blood. I have all power and authority. I'm going to take them. I'm going to take the land. He is Messiah the Prince, and as such, he intends to break the teeth of the wicked and all of their tawdry little kingdoms. And he does this by sanctioning nations, by destroying their idols, and sending the church in to proclaim the kingdom. So as prophet, priest, and king, Jesus the Messiah, he defends his sheep. He defends you. No one can lay an accusation against you, Christian. He defends his sheep. He exercises his will over all the nations. And he's currently building an impenetrable kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to get back to proclaiming this truth and stop dilly-dallying around with a pietistic gospel that has no teeth. And too many Christians are just gumming around hoping to get a breadcrumb from the humanist table. Oh, just please let us meet. No, we're meeting. End of story. That's the difference. As mediator, Christ is gathering, he's ruling, he's protecting his church. And since he holds all power and authority, you better believe that he intends to put his enemies under his feet. That's the intention of Christ. He intends to conquer the nations. He intends to press the crown rights into all matters pertaining to justice and righteousness. And his enemies will subject themselves to his rule as history progresses. That you can guarantee. And why? Because he has the name. He has the name. And it's time we get back to preaching this gospel, a gospel of power and authority. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we seek you. We seek you and we honor you and glorify you because of what your son Jesus has come to do. Um, Father, I pray that these, these um, messages from this foundation series as we explore just the full gamut of Christian theology um, and their implications, I, I pray that it would be, be heard and understood and, and that we would um, stop dilly-dallying with, with so much nonsense that you would cause your church to repent to turn away, to fight, Lord, the way you've called us to in terms of justice and righteousness, Lord. It's the first thing we're supposed to seek. That's the first thing we're supposed to seek, and oftentimes it's the last. And we wonder why we have what we have. Father, we certainly have reaped what we have sown, but I ask that you would turn us around. Turn us around here, our families, this church, would you grant us grace and mercy as we go forth, God, as your church, the church militant, the church that obeys King Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen.